You know, I think we need to hold ourselves accountable for not only telling the stories that haven't been told so far, but to make it a part of our professional responsibility to continue to tell stories and to not leave people out. And what are we doing today to not make the mistakes of the past? Uh, what are we doing for students today to make it a part of their practice to document, to tell stories, to identify gaps, and to make it a part of their world so we are not back to this same question five years and ten years from now. Ruki Newhold Ravakumar is the Acting Undersecretary for Education at the Smithsonian. She is responsible for defining the Smithsonian's educational priorities. She concentrates her efforts on institution-wide educational initiatives, communication strategies, and funding for programs that benefit learners of all ages. A significant focus of her work is to leverage the collective capacity of the Smithsonian education community to support the needs of K-12 teachers and students at local and national levels. In 2020, she formed and led a pan-institutional team to respond to the distant learning needs of teachers, students, and families during the COVID crisis. Ruki previously served as the Interim Associate Provost for Education and Access and the Director of Education at the Cooper Hewitt Smithsonian Design Museum. Ruki draws from her international experiences as a designer and educator to inform her human-centered approach to reimagining education at the Smithsonian. She holds a bachelor's degree in the history of fine art and drawing and painting from the Stella Maris College, a master of fine arts and graphic design from Iowa State University, and an executive education certificate in business from Yale University. Before joining the Smithsonian in 2017, Ruki, an award-winning designer, was an associate dean and professor of design at the University of Central Oklahoma. She has served in leadership roles at all levels of the American Institute of Graphic Arts, the AIGA, and in 2015 was awarded the prestigious title of AIGA Fellow for her advocacy and leadership as a design educator. Ruki is a nationally respected voice on design education and a passionate advocate for equal access to education. We have an exciting episode ahead as we talk to Ruki about her work at the Smithsonian, design education, curating a design collection, and women in design. All right. Thank you for joining us. This is um, a episode of Design DX, and today we are joined with Ruki Newhold Ravakumar. Um, as some of you might know, we Pete and I have uh, began working on a documentary film project, and the pandemic put a hold on that project for us. So now we are taking this opportunity to do some background research. Um, so Pete, do you want to start us off with the first question? Yeah, sure. I'd love to. Um, and Ruki, we've got the list of questions, the dreaded list of questions. But um, I, I hope that we can organically kind of evolve where these questions go, you know. Yeah. Um, but the official question, right? Give us a little background on yourself and your involvement in graphic design or even uh, design history, obviously, right? There's some uh, big background there and uh, what your current roles are. Sure. Um, so I'm originally from India. Uh, my undergraduate training is in art history, drawing, and painting. I came to the United States to pursue graduate education in design. I've been an educator for most of my adult life, and I truly believe I make my best contributions to society as an educator. 
I presently serve as the Director of Education at Cooper Hewitt Smithsonian Design Museum, and I'm also the Acting Undersecretary for Education for the Smithsonian at large. At Cooper Hewitt, the education team works really hard at increasing the level of design literacy in the country because we think a design literate nation will better appreciate the stories and collections at the Smithsonian. Excellent. And just a side note here, um, Ruki was also the my uh, one of my MFA professors, and she was the chair of my thesis and continues to oh. be a mentor for me. Oh, that's awesome. How cool is that? Well, I'm incredibly proud of Mandy. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, uh, Mandy's wonderful. I, I'm i so lucky. I'm, I think I'm going to say that every podcast that Mandy is uh, with me on, man, I've I'm so fortunate to have Mandy working on the project uh, alongside me with me. And uh, yeah, she's bringing some really great stuff, stuff to it. Uh, Rookie, did you mention where you got your undergrad from? I'm guessing that was in India then, right? Yes. My undergrad's from India, uh, from Stella Maris College, which is part of the University of Madras system. Ah, okay. Very excellent. I've been involved in a little bit of, um, mentorship um with a university and all of a sudden now right i've just drawn a blank on which university that was that was with but they have um they also have some work with a local uh i say local agency here they have called um is it just think they're out of colorado i can't recall now anyhow i i, I digress i got I got off into a rabbit hole, which is what I do a lot there. Uh, so, so your current role then at the Smithsonian, what does that look like? <laughs> um, well, I, I think it's, I have the best job. Um, when your workplace and your playground are the same place, then I, I think you have, you really hit the jackpot and that's the best way for me to describe the Smithsonian. It is so rich with stories and objects and collections of really how far we've come as humanity. And um, I, for me, it's, it's such an optimistic place to be because you can see not only the best, but the worst and learn from it. And at the end of the day, it really reminds us about where we've come from and what opportunities we have moving forward. And if I can help people relate to what we have at these museums and make a meaningful collection, um, then that's really what I'm hoping for on a day-to-day -day basis. That's great. So can you uh, tell us a little bit about the transition from teaching full-time at a university to working at the Smithsonian? I've been asked that question a lot. <laughs> <laughs> I'm curious. Um, yeah. Yeah. Um, well, after an 18-plus-year career in higher, higher education... Wow, congratulations. Uh, thanks. <laughs> <laughs> I always tell people my first tour of duty was higher education. Um, right. I found that I had advanced into an administrative role that really took me far away from my passions of design and education. And so I hear that I so often. Yeah. Yep. Um, and as I contemplated the next steps of my career, I really credit my wife for asking me a really important question. She said, if you could have any job in the world, what would it be? And I think we ask little kids that question 
um, mm-hmm. and we humor them with whatever their answers are. And as a kid, I think at that point, you are aiming for the most impressive thing that you've heard of in your life up to that point. And if that's an astronaut or a police officer or whatever that is, you have no idea of what the job is, but it's impressive to you and you want to aim for that. We don't ask ourselves that question often as adults, and we definitely don't help our loved ones with those questions either. We get so grounded in practicality and reality and money that I don't think we allow ourselves to dream. Um, so I'm really grateful that she asked me that question because it made me focus on opportunities at Cooper Hewitt, which if you are passionate about design and education, it's like the mothership. It calls you. Um, oh, well. So six intense interviews later, I had a job as the director of education at Cooper Hewitt. Wow. That's, I mean, just that title alone is just so like epic. It's like when you say it, it you should hear like ah, in, the, in, the, in the background. <laughs> yes. I, uh, I, I know that's, that's my, my untold goal is I'm hoping for a soundtrack to follow me wherever. <laughs> <laughs> that, that, that'll be excellent. Um, that's great. And I, I, I do want to jump yeah. in and just say, I love um, that you, you know, you really reflected on what your goals were. Um, because I think you're absolutely right that people kind of get stuck. And you often think of your career as this start thinking of your career as this like linear progression, that you're just constantly moving forward, instead of pausing to reflect and thinking, what do I want? Do I want to move forward? Do I want this next Thing, or do I want something completely different? Yeah, I think we all, you know, that linear track is very much true. It's such a comfortable place to be when you know exactly what the next step is. And there are certain systems like higher education that do that for you from the second you walk in, where you're either aiming for the next title um, or you know that once you've hit tenure that you are looking at other opportunities within administration There are some systems that just lay that path out for you. And in some sense, you get very comfortable with it. Uh, But if we as educators are always telling our students to be comfortable with discomfort, I think we should do the same for ourselves. And that was a point where um, I definitely, as an administrator, I have a lot of strengths. And I I did the job really well. I got a lot of accolades for it. But um, it was comfortable, and I really had to ask myself what was, you know, if I could have any job, would that be the job? I mean, how many people grow up saying, when I grow up, I would like to be a dean? Um, (laughs) Nobody. (laughs) Um, They are rewarding jobs, but I think I just found myself at that particular point in time cut off from, from two things that I really loved. Well, that's awesome. And still love. Hey, can can I put you on the spot? Sure. I mean, you kind of are on the spot, <laughs> aren't you? Um, short introduction to my question. Students all the time, who's your favorite designer? What's your favorite color? What's your favorite music? And um, wait, maybe I shouldn't give my answer. Maybe I should ask you first. So uh, I'll do that and then I'll tell you my answer if, if we remember to go back there. Um, so then joining the Smithsonian, what's, what's been your favorite thing? 
Wait, has, has there been a favorite exhibition? Well, for me, I think my favorite part of the Smithsonian is getting to work at the Smithsonian. <laughs> you know, it's just every day is a, an adventure. Um, more recently with my acting role, I've gotten to be in DC. So I am surrounded by, um, a whole lot of museums. There are 19 Smithsonian museums, nine research centers and a zoo. And even if you set aside an hour each day to go see something, um, I think it's going to take me decades to see it all, even though it's right where I work. Yeah. So and then it all change. Of, yeah. 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 And then it changes, right? Yeah. Exhibitions change. We collect new objects. Uh, we find new ways to tell stories. So it's that that change that's so exciting and um, just being in the thick of it and seeing how people interact with it, that sense of just adventure to have that at your job every day. I'm truly grateful. Yeah. I tell you what, I know exactly what you're talking about. And so my answer, and then I'm going to uh, transition just what you said into the next thing I want to ask you about. My answer is I don't have any students like look at me like you don't have a favorite. I'm like, well, how could I? It's so amazing. All of it. All of it's so great. Um, you know, we'll talk about, you know, Paula Shear's record albums and I've got a small collection um, and they're actually behind me. Like I've got some of Paula Shear's covers. Um, I've got Milton Glaser's um, Dylan album with the original poster in it. And I'm like, ooh, I'm so excited. I'll I'll pull out Louise Feely's um, pencil set because I had to order those and you know, so I start talking to students about all these great inspirations. I'm like, you can't have just one, you know, it, you just can't. Uh, and so it, it, through those conversations, we talk more and more about, you know, women designers. And I'm constantly like pulling these books off my shelf and taking them out to classes and showing them all these wonderful, um, all these wonderful designers, which is really amazing that, you know, Mandy and I now get to tell a part of the story and we've even like um joking non-jokingly talked about there's no way in a single documentary film can we tell the entire story um but we're we're figuring out what's the most important parts of the story so you know with your role then at the smithsonian smithsonian um women in graphic design and and working with the archives and the material there you know, can you tell me a little bit about your, your interest in women in design? Sure. To me, it has felt like one of those really obvious gaps in both written and oral history. The Smithsonian launched the American Women's History Initiative a few years ago, and I got really interested in finding ways to share the stories of women designers then. Um, in my world, I also get to meet a lot of teens and young people who are looking for creative pathways and creative professions. They are hungry for role models and seeing versions of themselves at museums and in the field that they aspire to have a career in. So that's really the place that I got interested in the story of women and the story of women in, in graphic design. Um, so just kind of jumping off that topic then, um, what topics would you like to see addressed in this documentary or, or a documentary film on women in graphic design history? 
You know, I think we need to hold ourselves accountable for not only telling the stories that haven't been told so far, but to make it a part of our professional responsibility to continue to tell stories and to not leave people out. And what are we doing today to not make the mistakes of the past? Uh, what are we doing for students today to make it a part of their practice to document, to tell stories, to, to identify gaps, and to make it a part of their world so we are not back to this same question five years and ten years from now? Um, you know, to be honest, I'm really honored you're speaking to me because I'm not your typical candidate for a documentary on women in graphic design. So I really commend you for looking at this a little bit more holistically and for including the voices of women in graphic design beyond practitioners. We have educators, business leaders, writers, and designers. They all contribute to the story on design. So, you know, I would encourage you to, to look at all of it, to, to look at it as a broad swath and to not um, edit yourselves when you tell that story. Yeah, that's something that Mandy and I have um, had some of those discussions and thank you so much for being a part of this. And thank you so much for, you know, recognizing the importance of, of you know, the inclusion from the, the educator to the designer, to the curator, to the archivist, to the historian. And maybe that's something that, um, as you were talking, I was like, man, you know, in my historiographic design class, I don't have them write a paper on a gap that they might have seen. Maybe that's something that I'm going to think about. So I appreciate that. That that might be a good way to to keep that conversation open and then talk about those topics, you know, after the paper is handed in about different things that people came up with. Um, so I really like that. Anyhow, it, yeah, I thought that was I thought that was marvelous. I wanted an opportunity to jump in and kind of kind of touch on that. And yeah, and Mandy and I were I mean, we're we're planning on having in the documentary film students that have just recently graduated and are out there working and 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 facing the the everyday issues that they might be seeing all the way up to, you know, legends of design and the different people from the different walks of of touching on design profession and the careers. So it's going to be a lot of fun. <laughs> I, I say that we cautiously, should. right? What's that? I think storytelling is fun. And so, you know, the fact that you have taken on talking to people and helping them tell their story and to not only tell their personal stories, but to also put that broader context in place of how does their story contribute to a larger story or set of stories. I think that's, that's the opportunity here. Now, you you mentioned earlier that your um, your background, your undergraduate education was in art history. Um, did you have a graphic design history course at any time, or did your art history course cover graphic design history? You know, I also grew up in India, so for me, there were very limited opportunities um, with seeking a design education at the time that I went to school. There was only one national design school and your parents were hesitant to send you too far away from home 
because um, they were worried for your safety. So I think the I did the best with the options I had available. Um, so was there mention of design in my art history course? Yes, um, but not to the level that I learned after coming to the United States and and being uh, taking on a master's degree uh, in graphic design. I learned a lot more. Um, but there were, I would say, people in advertising, which is what my first career was in. People would mention it. And if you're a curious person and you, you start to love things like typography um, or how images are made, you just start to uncover that world on your own. Um, so there, there was limited mention of design, but I think it's partly because I had limited options to begin with. Right. I think you you've stressed something I think that's very important um, in when, whenever you're trying to learn anything is is curiosity, um, because if you're a student of, of anything, whether it's graphic design or um, art or business, if you're not curious on your own, I think it's hard to really drive home those issues and the importance and the value. Um, do you have any other thoughts on or opinions on what relevant issues we should cover with the with the documentary you know in the museum world our work revolves around objects content and their stories so i i really see great value in work that seeks to to tell new and better stories um, voice is so important in a story so whose voice is it coming from and who is telling that story and how are we recording it and what are we prioritizing as key elements of that story? I think those are things that um, I hope you will consider as you make this documentary. Yeah, I think um, I think I would I would I would say yes. Am I answering your question? Am I am I agreeing with that? Um, the tables just turned. I'm yeah, mad. <laughs> yeah, yeah, and. We that yeah I mean the title the title of the documentary film is redesigning her story and uh, we have to thank um, Naoma and again last names and me don't get along very well so Naoma apologies uh, to you um, with helping us discover that name and creating the 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 visual identity behind the documentary film but that's it her story you know and not talking about hey they did this great great project over here. See it? It's beautiful. Don't you love it? And this person did a great project. And isn't it beautiful? Don't you love it? And this person, you know, this, everyone sees this image. Do you remember this one? You know, but more talking about their journeys and their stories um, and maybe obstacles even that they had to face, you know, um, did they see success right away or, you know, what, what was that like? You know, so right. it's going to be really interesting to, to get behind those those designers and behind those new women in design and find out what the stories are uh, going on there and, and filling out that gap in history. I think asking questions around gaps are difficult. You know, it's, it's kind of like asking, how do I know what's missing? Um, but I think women in graphic design, I think, is, is really like a cake with a lot of layers. Um, it's more than a story on gender disparity. Mm -hmm. it, it's about society, it's about culture, community, access, opportunity. Um, and as I think you explore those stories of women in graphic design, I really hope you explore both the breadth and the depth. Uh, 
um, you know, the reason I'm often not a prime candidate in documentaries like this is because some would say I don't have the pedigree, but that links to access and what opportunities did I have and what could I to reach from where I was. Um, and that should that doesn't necessarily write the script for what I can be. Um, and so I think those are important questions for us to ask. And I think women have asked that of themselves over time. Definitely. You know, um, I don't know if this is the right time to drop into this question, but uh, I'm going to, and I apologize uh, ahead of time um, to, to Manny for one, not like saying, oh, heads up, I have this idea. Um, but I, all of a sudden you made me wonder about gender identity. You know, and, and what does that look like in this discussion? Yeah, I think that's a hard, hard topic to cover because for a lot of people, you know, that's very personal. Um, and I mean, I was, I'm very interested to hear what Ruki has to say about this, but, you know, um, it's certainly an important topic to talk about in today's society. But at the same time, people need to be willing and ready to talk about it themselves. Sure, you're right. Yeah, I think people also confuse gender and sexuality, you know. Very much so. And in, in that confusion, they're hesitant to learn more and they're hesitant to ask the important questions. But if you look at the next generation and they really want to see versions of themselves, I have met so many queer young people who want to know who in, you know, do we have, can you show me someone's work in our collection of a, a queer designer and I couldn't and I, and that there I feel like it's a disservice because in we're walking on eggshells on some of these topics that we don't tag our data in a way that young people can immediately find role models and so telling these stories and having people step in and be able to share their story of their field their contributions and who they are, um, that's a big part about creating the next generation of designers and, and really creating the next generation of problem solvers. If they don't have role models, it's very hard for them to, to have a goalpost to even aim for. Their breadth of exposure is really limited by the adults in their lives. So for that young person who is asking questions, they're already showing how brave they are to ask for that. Because I don't remember doing that as a kid. Um, I just remember you know, taking what was put in front of me or choosing from the limited options. But the fact that we have a really empowered next generation asking us important questions, we need to step up and help them answer those questions. Yeah, I hope hope those are some topics that we can we can dive into. Um, you know, given the op if the opportunity presents itself, that would be fantastic. So you do think though that it is important for for students, young designers, to have role models. I think so. I think when there are not a lot of people who talk about you know all fields, and um, when you have an interest in a certain field you want to know what that looks like at the end of the day. So to have that uh, aversion of yourself to aspire to, I think is productive for some people. It's not to say that if you didn't have one, that you're not absolutely capable of getting there eventually. 
Um, it's just in some sense comforting, I think, to know that someone like you got there and was successful. Um, there are people like me where I didn't have a version of myself to aspire to, and it, it didn't stop me. Um, but, you know, if I had, say, met another Indian ed design educator, I would have probably not taken such a circuitous path to where I am. They could have answered some questions for me or um, highlighted some areas that I could have paid more attention to. But I found design in such a, it took me so long to get there um, that sometimes I wish I had had a role model that was a version, a future version of me. Well, now you will hopefully, and I am going to say will be that role model um, to more young people. I just, I can see it. I can just see it in, in how you present yourself and, and what you've accomplished and, and uh, how you, you speak about design, without a doubt. Yeah. Thank you. I, I think it's important that we, we um, step into our role, um, not just for personal achievement, but it's professional responsibility to pull some people up with you as you rise. I've been into classrooms around the country and I see, I meet people who I look at, they have sketchbooks, but they don't know what design is yet. And they're so excited to want to learn more about this thing that they're drawing. Um, I met a young boy in an Oakland school, and he had a sketchbook that if you were a professor, you would just die for. Something that, that was full, page, you know, front to back. He was drawing in it every single day, wow. whatever ideas came to mind. And he showed me that sketchbook and I was just so giddy excited to see it. And he, you could tell he was interested in animation because he was drawing those stick figures and he was doing it all on one page. It was a stick figure that would run and then jump over the spine of the book and continue to run forward. And he said, I like doing these kinds of drawings. And I said, that's animation. And he said, I, I don't, I've never heard that before. And so I showed him how he could, and this is a kid that had no access to technology. He goes home, there's no internet, there's no looking at animations online. So he has, has uncovered the world of animation without access to technology. And so I showed him how to draw these stick figures in the corner of his book and flip the pages. And that smile, I mean, that will stay with me for a very long time. And it's, it's probably some of the stories that motivate me to date to do what I do at the Smithsonian. Uh, but as I, I had that great rush of excitement in showing him that and connecting him to a world that I'm sure he will make his way to someday, as I was leaving, the teacher in his classroom asked me why I was wasting so much time with the one kid. And she said, he's not very talented. He just draws stick figures. And I thought, this kid's opportunities will be limited because of the breadth of exposure of the adults in his life. So had I not walked into that classroom, he would have never been connected to what his opportunities might have been. So what right. we do as educators, um, as advocates for design is so very critical. 
it, it is. Um, I'm going to go off on a small story and, and, and then hand it back over to Mandy. But I know exactly what you're saying. Um, that's my, that's my love of teaching. That's my, my reward is to see those students get lifted up to that potential and opportunity that they have. And then just kind of, you know, waving to them and sending them off at the end of, of that journey. But to that, to that drawing aspect, I have so many students that are like, well, I, you know, I'm, I'm never going to be a great draw, uh, a great designer because I can't draw. And, uh, you know, I talk about this so much that I start wondering if I'm repeating myself too often in too many different places, but I talk to them and, and, and that always, it just kind of, it hits a spot with me when they start thinking, well, I need to be able to draw to be a designer. Um, I, I think they're thinking about that high school experience, that high, that experience of, well, drawing is this, and you know they show a um, realistic rendering of Da Vinci or something like that, where it's just this breathtaking representation, um, and it ends up more being like, can can you communicate as a designer? You know, um, earlier today I was talking to someone about talking to someone about Woody Pirtle's, um hot seat, you know, and just drawing a pepper on wheels, you know, um, for the Knoll Furniture Company. And um, I'll tell students, you know, let, let's talk about this for a minute. And I'll take the three primary shapes, a circle, a triangle, and a square. And I'll stack them on top of each other on the whiteboard. And I'll ask them, what is it besides a circle, a triangle, and a square? Someone will be like, I think that's a little girl. I was like, exactly. I said, do I know how to communicate? Do I know how to draw? And what does that look like? Um, but then, you know, you show them other um, great designers that have this vast range of what drawing is and trying to break that that ideology that they get the grass is green and you have to be able to draw like this and you're never going to go anywhere if you if you don't have those skills it's so um so heartbreaking to hear those hear those stories but yeah i think that's that's excellent that's what makes that's what makes a great um a great educator a great advocate for design is is finding those moments where Everyone has that potential, right? And it's just it's just them hearing it from from another angle is always great. Anyhow, uh, I, I digress. I got off in a little rabbit hole there, but it, that touches my heart. It's very close to me, so I, I appreciate yeah, I mean, you talking we're about all it. Motivated to make a difference, you know. We we each have our stories to remind us of why we do what we do. Um, you know, I'm not going to lie. I always tell kids that if you're going to enter a feel like design, you should know how to draw. Um, you know, don't fool yourself into saying that I don't need to learn to draw at all. It's the how and the what and to what end goal are the, the questions that you should be asking. And I think you you alluded to range earlier. Yes, yes, that, exactly. Yeah. You know, you don't need to be able to draw at a photorealistic level, but it's a field where you have to visually communicate and so drawing is part of your skill set that you just have to have. So I try to ground people in the reality of what the expectations are in the field and what they should aspire to have as core competencies. Um, you know, not everyone can be a designer. I, I've said that often at the design museum that everyone can be creative, but not everyone can be a creative professional. And, and that's, that's the difference is knowing what those skill sets are and being able to invest the time in developing those 
through education and through practice is what gets you to actually call yourself a professional. So that that understanding of, you know, drawing, I think sometimes we, we go the other way and we tell people, you don't need to learn to draw, but we're in a visual field and that's how we communicate. So we should also sort of guide people with what is realistic and, and what are skills they should have and what are passions they should have and where do they see themselves investing their time in the most in order to advance themselves and their field. Well, I'm going to bring us back to the topic of the documentary film on women and graphic design history. Um, but can you can you talk a little bit about the value of a project like this? I mean, do you do you see personal value or um, more broadly value to the, the community or education? Um, what are your thoughts about that? You know, I think um, I, I see a lot of value, as I mentioned before, if you're a museum educator, you're relying very much on stories, objects, and content to help people connect. Um, and I think in the world of history, there are a few very prolific writers, but the, the voice is always, it's this, it's this single voice. And if you also look at what are acknowledged textbooks on history, um, they tell a very small sliver of the grander story. So those who are willing to spend some time exploring what the gaps are and to fill those, you know, I, I see great value there. Um, in coming to the Smithsonian, more recently I walked into the, uh, right before we closed for the COVID outbreak, um, I walked into the National Museum of the American Indian and there was a very, very large display of um, visuals of Native Americans in design. And it was a whole room full of package design advertising typography that all show representations of American Indians in them. And I'd never seen anything like that in a history textbook. And so that just goes to tell you that there are stories that just haven't been told um, or they're just not traditionally visible in, um, in things that have that, that t title of history. Um, also in my present role, I have become more familiar with um, the Green Book, the Negro Motorist Green Book. And if you look at that project, there are so many amazing stories of women entrepreneurs that I've never seen told anywhere else. Now, that's not a traditional history book, but it captures such an important part of women entrepreneurs and women of color being entrepreneurs at a time when that was just unheard of. So I think, you know, we, we have such a, a long way to go with, and there's so much opportunity here, um, but I see great value in identifying gaps and, and telling stories to fill them. I have a student who um, last semester, or actually it was two semesters ago, um, wrote a paper on um, exploring Native American graphic designers. Um, I, I have a project where students are supposed to <clears throat> find out, figure out what is missing from graphic design history and explore a topic um, that isn't covered in the design history textbooks. And so she is a Native American and she wanted to explore Native American graphic designers and she submitted um, her paper to 
uh, the National Council for Undergraduate Research um, and got accepted to their conference. And she was very nervous about going and presenting. And I told her, I said, how, how important is this research to you? And she said, it's very important. I said, don't you think you should share this with other people? And she said, yes. Yeah. So she agreed to go. Unfortunately, it got canceled due to COVID-19. But, um, but I was very proud of her um, for, for agreeing to go, even though she had some anxieties about it. Sure. Yeah. So with all the opportunity, there's always the other side of, of this, right? So do you see potential problems or issues in a documentary film such as this that um, should be noted? Um, I think, you know, it's, it comes down to you as the authors of this. Are you going to take a linear approach to telling your story, much like we talked about with career pathways earlier? Um, or are we going to look at different models of telling stories here? We talked not too long ago about how the story of women in graphic design expands to more than just practitioners, that if you don't have educators helping young people find their pathway to the field, and you don't have voices in business who are helping designers find a seat at their table, then that story is just that much more bland. Um, so I hope that you will not take a linear approach to the storyline that you pursue for this documentary. Yeah, Thank that's you. yeah, that's a, a, a great thought for sure. Um, you know, and I, I like what you're saying about including some of the agencies that, you know, are are part of the discussion as well. And I definitely think that that's something that we can we can definitely bring to the table. I don't know how much we talked about that, but Mandy and I have, uh, again, working with the agency that's helping us with the visual identity for it might be a wonderful opportunity um, to speak with them and, and talk with them about the opportunities to have more women in graphic design or what that looks like. Right. Yeah, but I think about even business leaders like, you know, design became a part of Pepsi's vocabulary because of an Indra Nui. Um, had she not brought designers to the table to make business decisions with her, that would have not become a vocabulary of that company. Um, she did a talk not too long ago where she talked about how design was about color-based decisions at her company. And in order to elevate that, it meant elevating the role of designers. Now, here's a woman who is not a designer, but she has done a lot for design. So that I think is the full story there is it takes people in different roles to contribute to the success of the field and the stories that are told in it. Right. Um, can you tell us about any ongoing projects at the Smithsonian that we should be aware of that might tie into this project? Well, definitely the American Women's History Initiative is something that's uh, near and dear to me. It's a pan-institutional initiative. So every Smithsonian museum is looking at where are those gaps and stories where we haven't talked about the contributions of women to different fields. This includes women in science, women in arts, women in research. So I'm really glad that we are looking at the story of women in a broad way at the Smithsonian. Um, you know, personally, when I first 
came here to the United States for graduate school, my graduate research was was really about um, trying to to understand the world of graphic design in India and to compare it to what I was learning here. Um, my early experiences with graphic design were rather strange because I was exposed to a Western norm of thinking. Certain rules and preferences were not what I my eye was trained to see or do. Um, there's an essay I've, I had written some time back about the whiteness of white space. The first time a professor talked to me about there isn't enough white space in your design, I remember being so very confused. Um, and so it, as, an, as a graduate student in design, I, I really tried to tell more stories about cultural sides of, of design and how there's no one-size-fits-all. And it's really about taking a user-centered point of view and doing what's right for the user. Um, but as I've transitioned careers, I've really taken some of the thinking of design and my training as a designer to almost every role that I've had. So right now at the Smithsonian, I think I'm working really on how do we as a, a nation, national museum expand that breadth of exposure for people? How do we help them see stories that they are inspired by and uh, can hold on to as inspiration and motivation? Um, so finding those stories, finding opportunities for access to to let young people know that they have the world accessible at their fingertips at a place like the Smithsonian. Those are the types of things that I'm working on. Um, and as an educator, I'm also continuously working on how can we as educators um, step up and take on some visibility too. Um, people need to be able to find us too in order to improve their training. And I think that's something that I'd like to focus on in my present role. It, that gives me a great opportunity to ask one of the questions that we also had um, um, set to ask you is, uh, is there gender disparity uh, in reputation in representation in museums currently? Representation in terms of expertise or content or? Oh, good question. Um Let's let's talk about it generally, and then maybe you can you can let us know if there is something that is in quality or volume. You know, like sure we have a lot, but it it doesn't represent a certain thing or something like that. So, well, if you think about you know traditional, I think museums have come a long way. Yeah. But traditionally, if you looked at what made its way into a museum, um, it was because somebody took the trouble to collect something. And who were the people that had the means and opportunity to collect? And to when you collect, it's not just about owning, it's also about preserving and protecting it so it lasts for a period of time. So I think for a while it was about who had the means to do that. And I think it gained the reputation of the stories of the elite were what were told and captured, but that's who had the means to, to save objects and to donate them. And that's what had made its way into, the, into museums, at least art museums and art-based museums. 
um, that I think some of that affected representation of stories. But if you look at the 19 Smithsonian museums, you'll see that it covers a lot. If you look at the um, National Museum of African American History and Culture, that um, the present secretary of the Smithsonian, someone I have the honor of working with to date, was the founding director of that. He built the collection at that museum from garages and attic attic spaces. Um, so, you know, you you were earlier pointing to things behind you and how you eat. You you've collected things that are um, special to you as they serve as points of inspiration. I think we all do that in some way, and it's helping people really see how they're each holding on to something of value and helping people find their inner historians and to to tell stories. Yeah. I don't think history should be the domain of, of a few. Everyone is capable of telling a story and everyone owns a part of history. Um, the amazing part of being at the Smithsonian is that no matter where I've gone in the country, people come up to me and tell me about how what their Smithsonian story is. And they will point to something obscure in our collection and say, tell me that their grandfather is in that mural or that their grandmother had a version of it. And they know the story behind that object so well that you can suddenly see them take on that historian role um, and really embrace it and tell me things that no book will tell me. Um, yeah. And so that to me is exciting that we can create citizen historians and citizen storytellers to be a part of helping us bridge those gaps that we've been talking about for the last hour. Right. Yeah. yeah you mentioned, um, you know, through history, museums have kind of been the collection of the elite kind of thing. And we're now seeing that change in museums, right? And you even mentioned the Green Book and having a whole um, exhibit around the Green Book and all of the other great exhibits that the Smithsonian is having. When when did this? When do you think that pendulum shifted? When when do you think that change happened? Because I think back when I was, you know, um, in my elementary school days and going to the museum, you know, it was a very different museum at that time. You know, you you didn't wander anywhere you stayed right next to the, to mom or dad and you know everyone kind of walked through their path and you would stop for a moment to admire and then you'd move on um but it's different today right when did that when did that shift happen do you think yeah i don't think i could identify a specific point of time but i would say that it's an evolving field um and i'm really glad that museum professionals are asking themselves um, what their responsibilities are and in telling the full story and in capturing the full story as well. Um, that that has been happening for some time now and what comes into a collection or what's missing, these are processes that are well discussed in a lot of our national museums, um, that there is a great attempt to to tell a complete story or at least complete to the best of anyone's ability. Um, so so I, I'm glad that, that that is happening. And I think a lot of criticisms 
uh, our criticisms of the past and things that the museum sector has responded to well, at least in present time? Well, um, in the interest of time, I think we should probably wrap up. I'm sure you're, you have a very busy schedule. I appreciate you taking the time to sit down and do this interview with us. And I think that um, the information you've shared with us is going to be really, really valuable as we continue to move forward on this documentary film project. Well, thank you. Thanks for inviting me and uh, good luck. Yeah, thank you so much. Hey, where can people find more information um, about Smithsonian, some of the great stuff that uh, you, we talked about in this podcast episode, or even um, some social media to follow? Sure, I'd be happy to share those handles and websites with you. Um, so Smithsonian does have a fairly robust presence online. Um, we also have a newly launched open access initiative, so it makes a lot of our content available for people to use in their own creative work. Um, the Smithsonian has also been on a fairly ambitious run of digitizing a lot of its work, which is also accessible. So I think that notion of being able to see things only if you're in D.C. or at a museum really working hard at extending our objects, our stories, and our content well beyond the walls of our buildings. Um, and we're also now trying to do that in no-tech and low-tech ways so we can um, really reach communities that are still hampered by access to technology. That's fantastic. Okay, and then I'll um, be sure to put some information in the show notes as well so people can find all those That's links great. and information. Wonderful. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you, Ruki. Thank you for joining us for this episode. The Design Dedux podcast can be found at designdedux.com. That's D-E-S-I-G-N-D-E-D-U-X.com where you can listen to the podcast or watch the video version of the podcast, as well as find links to the guests and the topics discussed during each episode. The Design Dedux podcast can be found on most podcast listening platforms. You can join us on social media through Instagram and Twitter via at design underscore Dedux on Facebook as Design Dedux podcast and join us on YouTube at Design Dedux for video versions of each episode. If you are enjoying the podcast, you can show your support on Patreon at patreon.com forward slash design underscore deducts. Once again, thanks for joining us, and we hope you'll join us again for the next episode.